of 1 Timothy, we are finishing a, a journey through this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. We started, I look back at the date, we started looking at this letter and working our way through this letter on October the 3rd. And in uh, my prayer and the prayer of the elders of this church has been that this has been enriching to our congregation here, that God by His Spirit is uh, conforming us all more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and just by way of reminder, as we close down, we want to remember that this is an ecclesiastical letter, that is, that it was written to the church of Ephesus, expected to be read publicly by the pastor of that church. His name was Timothy, right? A letter from his mentor, the Apostle Paul, as it related to the gospel, to guarding the good deposit is what we're going to see this morning, um, the significance of that, the good deposit of the gospel, that is, the implications that it should have for our lives. And, and while this is an ecclesiastical letter, I, I want to impress something on our congregation because I think churches often get this wrong, and we just sang a moment ago when we were singing the hymn, Holy, 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 uh, we, we talked about all of creation declaring that, right? The heavens, what's invisible, the earth, what's visible. This book, our Lord, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, this gospel that we've been saved by, this gospel that we are entrusted with, it doesn't stay in the four walls of this building. Right? There's no such thing as a privatized faith. Right? This, this has something that we take with us outside of the four walls of this building, which is another way of me impressing upon us this morning that there's no divide between secular and sacred. Jesus Christ owns absolutely everything. Right? And we, we talk about this from time to time, but we need to genuinely think all of Christ for all of life. There's nothing that is compartmentalized from Him. There's nothing that's off limits to Him. There's no place that His gospel light doesn't shine. And we are called as His church to take that gospel to the ends of the earth in His authority. And so my prayer is, is that we'll see the relevance of this, not just for us as a church, not just as we worship publicly here each Lord's Day, but we will see the implications that it has for us as we go beyond these walls, as we seek to genuinely love people by calling them to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so, as Paul wraps down this letter, the name of this sermon is Motivators and Gospel Remedies. And, and, uh, and my prayer is, is that you'll see the relevance in being able to, again, walk in the joy of the Lord by, by a, th a thorough contemplation. And we're just going to scratch the surface this morning of, of who God is, uh, and, and even just reflecting this morning on the return of Christ, how that can be a motivator in our own daily walking with the Lord, but it should be a motivator in the way that we go out of here. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 11, right? the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy under the inspiration of the Spirit to be read in the public assembly, he says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, and godliness, and faith, and love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Right? A public confession to keep the commandment unstained 
and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word, God. We thank you that, God, your Holy Spirit did in fact inspire it, God, and that it's your Holy Spirit that has preserved it so that we can open it this morning. Help us to see this as we're looking at it, that help us to to know that it's you that speaks to us through this written word preserved throughout the ages. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, give us humility to apply this in our lives, God. And we give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, the, the, the first thing that you can jot down that we're going to kind of work through is that the, the, the presence of God, the presence of God and And the promised return of Jesus, the presence of God and the promised return of Jesus are powerful motivators in the Christian life. The the presence of God and the promised return of Jesus are powerful motivators in the Christian life. And and I'm rearranging our uh, text this morning. And the reason that I'm doing that is because the Apostle Paul, he's grounding these final instructions in the presence of God and the promised return of Jesus. This is the crux of this passage of Scripture that gives significance to everything that the Apostle Paul is saying. In fact, it gives significance to everything that we read in Scripture. But Paul here, he's reminding Timothy of of God's presence, and he's grounding his instructions to to Timothy the pastor in God's pres- in, in, in the authority of God's presence by reminding him of God's presence and by reminding him of the second advent, of, of Christ's return to make everything definitively new. And so let, let's, let's kind of pick that apart a little bit. First, let's, let's just think through for a moment the presence of God as a motivator. The presence of God as a motivator. It's the presence of God, again, that gives validity to the words of, of the Apostle Paul, which are, we don't want to forget this, which are the Holy Spirit's words, right? right? It's the presence of God which guarantees accountability to Timothy, who he's writing to, to the elders who he's writing to. It's the presence of God that, that would remind the church of Ephesus that Christ is the head of his church. It's, it's the presence of God that, that brings comfort, that brings strength, that brings perseverance. It's the presence of God that brings efficacy to the Word of God. Which is to say the presence of God is practical. It's practical. 
right? It, 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 it has concrete implications for the way in which we live our lives. Now, Paul says to Timothy in verse 13, he says, I charge you, right? I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. Again, this isn't Paul, this isn't Paul speaking on his own authority, right? Paul's saying, thus saith the Lord. And he's reminding Timothy that God's ever-present. God is ever-present. The psalmist tells us that in Psalm 46, right? He's an ever-present help in time of trouble, right? He's present in the troubles of life. He's present in our temptations. He's present in our sufferings. He's present in the hard ministry that Timothy and the elders were called to lead at Ephesus. God is ever-present, right? Which begs the question, what may seem again like a, a... a basic question, but where, again, where is God? Where is God? Right? One of the catechisms that our, our kids learn um, in, in the back that we teach the, the children here at Deer Park is that very question, where is God? Right? The answer, and, and, and certainly that's a question that our culture in some shape, form, or fashion is obsessed with. Where is God? And all of this, where is God? I don't see God. Where is He? Right? God's everywhere. The theological word for this is omnipresence. And while we may confess that as a church, we do have to take a step back and ask, does that have any bearing on our lives? How does that impact us at a heart level? How does that impact us, our our minds? How does that impact our hands, our labors, our work? Are we sensitive to it? Are we callous to the presence of God? Because the inescapable presence of God in our lives it certainly should impact the way that we live. It should impact the way that we even view ourselves. All right, Solomon says in Proverbs 15.3, he says, The eyes of the Lord in every place behold the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord in every place behold the evil and the good. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Can any hide himself in secret places? Been thinking about that phrase, secret places. You know, those places even in our lives that we don't want anybody to know about, right? Those very things in our lives that if any, anyone found out about them, if anyone knew the meditations of our hearts really, they'd turn away from us. They wouldn't be able to bear it. Right? And the Lord reminds us here that he's, he's even in the secret places. He says, do I not feel heaven? Again, what's invisible? In earth, what's visible, saith the Lord. And as Christians, we should look at this and and see that we we live quorum Deo. We live before it, and we should joyfully live as Christians before the face of Almighty God. We live our lives in the presence of God. And, And this God, Paul says is the one in, in, in the second part of verse 13 there, if you're looking at, at, at your Bible, this God is the one who gives life to all things. Right? He gives life to all things. He, he's the author of life, which means that He's the owner of life, and He's the sustainer of life. Right? He's the sustainer of life. And he, and he didn't create us in this world just to sit back and see how things play out. He's everywhere, which also means that He's near. He's near. And His nearness to us is displayed best, perhaps, through the incarnation of Jesus, right? 
something that, that we're more mindful of around Christmas time, something that society perhaps is more mindful of around Christmas time, but Emmanuel is what we call him, right? which is God with us, God with us. It's also displayed to us through his indwelling Holy Spirit, right? right? The paraclete, the comforter, the, the convictor, the exalter of Christ to us. And Scripture says that we're His temple. That we're His temple. And not only is God the giver of life to everything, not only is God near to us, but if we keep looking at the text, there's a few more things we need to be meditating on and saturating ourselves in as it relates to God. He's sovereign. Right? Clark explain that word potentate that we've sang about a few times that some translations use. And his sovereignty necessitates that he's intricately involved in the details of our lives. That word sovereign, it means ruler. It means controller. It means powerful. And Paul qualifies that attribute of God's sovereign by saying that God is the only sovereign. He's the only sovereign, which is further developed and strengthened by him calling him, he's the king of all kings. Right? He's the king that kings bow down to. Right? He's the Lord of lords. Right? Our ever-present God, he has no competitor. Our ever-present God, he has no equal. His sovereignty, his kingship, his lordship is found in himself, in his own good, unchanging character. He doesn't derive his authority or his power or his control from anyone. God's dynasty includes himself and no one else throughout all eternity. And everything is under the care, under his providential care. It's under the care of our good king. Nothing is outside the hands, the providential hands of our Lord. Our very lives are in his hands. Our circumstances are in His hands. Our eternity is in His hands. Paul goes on to say that God has immortality. You see that in the text, immortality. He's eternal. He's eternal. He he was never born. He he will never die. He's not young. He doesn't grow old. He's not learning how things operate. One theologian put it this way, God's not subject to changes caused by time or death or disillusion. We've talked about this before, but he's the I am. He's the I am. That's what he reveals himself. That's his name to, to, that he reveals himself to Moses in. He's the I am, which means that he's self-sufficient. Our ever-present God has life in himself. And this God, Paul says, dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. This means that He's holy. We just sang the song. It means that He's holy and that He's a spirit. Darkness can't touch Him. Sinful man can't stand in His presence and live. The very seraphim that we just saying about it, and if you were singing, singing about the seraphim and the cherubim, and as you're singing it, you're like, what in the world is that? 
right? They're, they're these fierce, unfallen creatures. But the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 that Clark read to us a moment ago, these unfallen, sinless creatures, they stand around the throne of God and they declare in Trinitarian format, holy, 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 holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Holy Spirit, right? The whole earth, not just in the church, but the whole earth is full of His glory, Right, and as they're singing that, their eyes are covered. Can't even look upon. These unfallen creatures can't even look upon the glory of God. So Paul's saying to Timothy, and the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning, Behold your God. Right? Behold your God. He's near you. He's the I am. He's inescapable. And might I add that he's good. He's good. He's a good God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this could, this could be terrifying news if you, you think about it for a while. It can be terrifying news. This, this holy, glorious, powerful, immortal, ever-present God created you and he sees you. He created you and he sees you. In fact, He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every thought and intention of your heart better than you. And even on your best day, right, even if you, you close, out, close out a day and you're like, man, I knocked that one out of the park. Right? Even on your best day, if you stand in His presence without being covered in the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ, you will feel for eternity God's righteous wrath for your sin, for your disobedience. The scripture reminds us that God by no means clears the guilty. In fact, that's a quote from Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Then how can I be cleared? How can I be cleared? That may be the question that you're asking. If God by no means clears the guilty, how can I be cleared? It's by turning away from your sins. By embracing Christ who who took your guilt and and experienced the full force of God's wrath for it on the cross. You you can be cleared of your guilt because Jesus Christ was not cleared of it, though He never sinned. Paul says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You can embrace Christ. That's a gift to you. You can embrace Christ. You could do it this very moment. He's present. He's present. No matter where you are. No matter who you are. It's a joy. As a Christian, it's a joy to be covered in the blood of Christ Jesus. It's a joy to be in the presence of God possessing the righteousness of Christ. That's a joy. To be in the presence of God possessing the righteousness of Christ. It's a joy to be in His presence with the Holy Spirit testifying to you that you belong to Him, both body and soul. Because for the Christian, for the one whose sins are forgiven, the presence of God really is a delight. The presence of God really is a delight. To know that the Lord is always near, no matter what, is immensely comforting, especially in, in, 
and what could be referred to those dark nights of the soul. He's near even there. And the Lord, through His Word, He sanctifies us and He conforms us more in the image of Jesus Christ. And as is being used here in our text this morning, a mindfulness of the presence of God helps us to walk properly in the power of the Spirit to, to obey the teachings and instructions of our Lord. So Paul's charge, it, it has gravitas. It has gravitas because of the presence and, and, and as we see in this text, and the power of Almighty God. Secondly, his charge carries weight because the return of Jesus Christ is a powerful motivator. The return of Jesus Christ is a powerful motivator. Look at the second part of verse 13 down to verse 15. And of Christ Jesus... He kind of props him up as, a test, as, as, a, yeah, as, a, uh, as an example here. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, speaking of the Father, will display at the proper time. All right? Christ, he humbled himself in the first advent. Right in his first coming. He humbled himself by becoming a man, by adding humanity, being truly human, adding that to his deity. He, he came to seek us. He came to save us. And now what we're, we're laboring toward now, right? and why this has an impact that's, that's reaching beyond just the four walls of this building, what we're laboring toward now is a second advent. It's a second advent. It's a second coming. When, when Christ Jesus comes back, which is after all of his enemies are made his footstool. That's when Christ is coming back, when all of his enemies are made his footstool. And that's through the completion of the Great Commission that was given in his authority, which is present in heaven and on earth. But we see that Christ is going to return when all his enemies are made his footstool. We see this in Psalm 110.1. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10. Christ's new earth is one in which Habakkuk describes as one where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The earth. The earth will be transformed in that way. In fact, it's being transformed now in that way. As the news of his resurrection and his ascension and his seating at the, sitting at the right hand of the Father, as that kind of news spreads, it's the result of that. Right, this is what we're laboring toward. This is what we're working toward. And Paul is reminding Timothy of that in by bringing up Christ's faithfulness and commitment to the gospel on trial before Pontius Pilate and, and the mob, thereby saying, be faithful to the Lord no, no matter the conflict, no matter how dire the circumstances may be, no matter how dark things get, be as faithful as Christ was faithful because Christ's faithfulness led to the redemption of the church. And Paul reminds Timothy that this Christ who is faithful, this Christ who redeems, he really is going to come back. He really is going to come back. And He's going to undo the curse once and for all. Right? All the brokenness, all the suffering, the sins that still easily entangle us this side of eternity. 
One of my favorite lines to Joy to the World, which isn't actually a Christmas song, which is a story for another day. Um, but it, but it, it talks about how His coming, right? it's about the great undoing. It's about the great undoing of everything bad, is what that song is about. And, and, I, and I love singing the verse, He comes to make His blessings flow. Does anybody know the Far as the curse is found. He comes to make His blessings. Where there are curses, Christ brings blessings. Right? He brings blessings. And, and that's gradually spreading, all because He came back to life 2,000 plus years ago. All because he resurrected. And I know I said this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth saying again. In a world in which the God of the, of the universe came and entered into and dwelt near us and took our sin upon himself, and then by the Spirit of God bodily resurrected, a, a world in which a man came back to life never to die again, that kind of world doesn't stay the same. It doesn't stay the same. So what do we do in response to to meditating on such glorious truths as Christians? And this this is just thinking through this stuff as we are this morning. This is devotionally rich stuff. This should warm us. And again, we're just scratching the surface. We don't... this, This stuff is inexhaustible looking at it and thinking through it, right? We're just scratching the surface on this stuff. But, but what should we do in light of this? And I think we see it in the text. We worship. We worship. Paul does. He, he breaks into doxology, which is where our theology, right? All, all this stuff that we're learning about the Lord should lead us to, to worship Him. Right, to, to give Him glory. That's the overflow of rightly thinking through, pondering, meditating on, digesting who God is for us in Christ. Paul says this to Him, right, to our triune God, be honor and eternal dominion. Eternal dominion, amen. So the presence of God and, and the promised return of Jesus, they are powerful. Powerful motivators in the Christian life. And so we, we should use these glorious realities. We, we should try to get, again, every nutrient that we could possibly get, we should squeeze out of this. And it's stabilizing. It's stabilizing. In an unsettled world, there are lives that can be turned upside down in a moment. This is a very stabilizing unchanging reality. So the presence of God and the promised return of Jesus are powerful motivators in the Christian life. Secondly, a virtuous life, and I would add ministry here because that's the context we're looking at, a virtuous life and ministry comes when you bring the gospel to bear on every specific area of your life. And a virtuous life and ministry comes when you bring the gospel to bear on every specific area of your life. And again, Christ touches everything. He touches everything. Right? And, and I've, again, rearranged the ordering of these verses, but, but look with me at verses 11 and 12, and then we'll look down at verses 20 and 21. But as for you, O man, 
O man of God, flee these things. And we'll connect this again to what we were talking about last week. Flee these things. The idolatry, the love of money. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. O Timothy, guard the, uh, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble in contradiction of what's falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Right? These, these instructions, okay, with, with the full weight of God's presence with the full weight of the promised return of Jesus Christ, right, are completely opposed to what we saw last week, right? The beliefs, the motives, and the outworking of false teachers. Just by way of reminder, verses 4 and 5, the, the false teachers and their false doctrine, right, this is what we see. This is the, uh, the, the, their character, and this is the outworking of their lives. It says he's puffed up, with conceit, again, this is just a few verses before, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce, here's the outworking of it, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a, is a means of gain, right? That godliness can serve a wicked purpose. We see here in our text this morning righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These aren't things, this list that Paul gives here, they're not things that you get to or even possess by moving beyond the gospel. Right? You, you, these aren't things you get. These aren't things you possess by moving beyond the gospel. Paul hasn't moved beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ by working through these particular attributes. It's Christ who is righteous and godly and faithful and loving and steadfast and gentle. And to cultivate these things in your life, you must know Christ. Right? Experientially, you must know Christ. These false teachers, as we saw last week, they understood nothing, is, is what the Apostle Paul said. Not meaning that they can't comprehend in God's common grace things that are, that are going on, but they understood nothing in the sense that they had no firsthand knowledge of God. They had not experienced the, the life-altering encounter that one has when he's changed by Christ and his gospel forever. There's no experiential knowledge of God as what was going on there. But in contrast, Paul says to Timothy, but, and he shifts here, but as for you, O man of God. And what is he doing there? Right, he, he, he's reminding Timothy that unlike the, these false teachers, he's positionally right before God. Right? He shares union with Christ. Timothy is justified by Christ alone, and the Holy Spirit of God lives in him and empowers his very ministry. This is why Paul commends the cultivation of these attributes in Timothy's life and ministry. This is why Paul can charge Timothy to flee the vices, to flee the particular sins that were entangling people at that church. The Puritan John Owen says, there's no death of sin without the death of Christ. Okay, There's no death of sin without the death of Christ, and to kill sin is the work of living men. It's the work of living men, men that are brought alive 
by the Holy Spirit of God, right? Timothy was a living man by the grace of God alone. If you're a Christian this morning, you're a living man, you're a living woman by the grace of God alone. Salvation is a gift. It's not something you're smart enough uh, uh, to, 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 to get to on your own. It's not something that you can be righteous enough to deserve. It's an absolute gift based on Christ alone applied to your life by the Holy Spirit of God alone. And Paul's saying here in our text that we need to roll the dough of the gospel, if you will, out to all the edges. Right? Out to all the edges. Spread it into all the nooks and crannies of your life. Shine gospel light everywhere. And these attributes that Paul gives, they are practical outworkings of the gospel. I've heard a pastor put it this way, and I found it to be really helpful the way that he put it. He says, this is what you get, right? Attributes like this, a life like this. This is what you get when you take the disinfectant of the gospel and you spray it on very specific sins, right? You take the disinfectant of the gospel and you spray it on very specific sins. Sins like what we saw last week, conceit, quarrelsomeness, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, depraved thinking. Man, these words describe the society in which we live, right? How do we get out of that? How do we, how do we get out of the constant pride and arrogance, the constant quarrelsomeness, the envy we see in society, dissension, slandering that we see in society, people being suspicious, one, we should look at this and say, man, there's nothing new, <laughs> right? right? Be encouraged that there's nothing new, that we're not living in this unique time in which we're experiencing these things. For the, we're the first people ever in the history of the universe to ever encounter this kind of stuff. But the remedy for it is the gospel. It's the disinfectant of the gospel, and we see gospel remedies applied to these specific sin issues. We don't overcome sin and temptation generically. All right? We don't overcome sin and temptation generically. Christ died, and, and we need to think about it this way, Christ died for our specific sins. He died for our specific sins. He didn't die for a general people for general sins. Christ was very specific in His coming and His dying and His seeking and His saving. So we have to mortify our specific sins which Christ died for. We have to mortify our specific sins which are forgiven. Just to say, we're not passive in our sanctification. We call our sins out in our confessions. We did that this morning and we should make a habit of this in our our lives. We look to the Scripture and we see what practical outworking the gospel we need to apply in order to put put to death the deeds of the flesh which Paul tells us to do, Romans 8.13. And we see Paul do that, a sort of case study, if you will, for those that are wealthy in the congregation at Ephesus, those who may have begun to develop the same lust for wealth, material things, power, influence that these false teachers had in the church of Ephesus. In this section, again, it'd be a good example for us to learn how to apply the disinfectant of the gospel to something like the love of money, right? 
money, wealth, influence, all those things can be good gifts from God leveraged for his kingdom, but we take good gifts like that and we distort them and make them something wicked, right? And we become enslaved to them and they begin to animate our very lives, our very existence. And if you find yourself intoxicated by material things, and, and, and we all do seem to struggle with this, all of us seem to struggle with this in some shape, form, or fashion, right? The gospel applied helps to unearth those lusts in us and and to put entrusted resources like wealth and influence in their proper place because the gospel can transform how you use and how you see your wealth when you when you bring it when you bring the gospel to bear on the resources God's entrusted to you so look just lastly here at this the last few verses which again we're out of order 17 and 18 and 19 it says as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. Get this, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. We set our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't overcorrect and call money evil. He says we can actually be freed up to enjoy it in light of worshiping the Lord alone who's the giver of it. And he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right? Paul's saying, don't be like these false teachers. Right? That's what we see here. But he's not just saying that. He's, he is specific as it, as it relates to, to repentance. And, and let me just say this morning, as, as I close down, how we can apply this passage in a gospel-saturated way. All right, first... Paul gives us areas to be watchful of, areas that we need to ensure that we give no breathing room to, right? Haughtiness is, is, is the first thing he wants us to watch out for, right? This is pride. This is arrogance. This is the byproduct, the, or the byproduct of this is to, to look down on other people, right? Or to use other people for your selfish purposes or your selfish Intent, it's to become consumed with yourself, to think about yourself constantly. Or where, we, where, we go for, where do we go for the antithesis of haughty? We're thinking about gospel remedies. My mind went to Philippians chapter 2. Right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 8. This is the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit again. He says, do nothing. He's writing to the church of Philippi here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, right, we humble ourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which you possess in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right? The practical outworking just of that passage is to recognize that we possess the mind of Christ already, that we're seeing Christ both as Savior and not forgetting that, and we're also seeing him as the template by which the Spirit living in us that we can seek to emulate for the good of other people this side of eternity, right? And, and we're to grow sensitive to that and we're to practically cultivate it in our very lives. And we do this by, really, again, in a very concrete way, we do this by 
thinking about and treating others as if they are more important than we are. We do this by sacrificially serving others in such a way that it has the redemptive aroma of Christ Jesus. We don't hold anything tightly with clenched fists in our lives that further submits our pride or that further submits our self-importance. Paul also says to Timothy and the church of Ephesus, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches and power and influence, even a reputation, what other people think about you, which is different than character, who you actually are, or what God thinks about you. But your reputation, these are all fickle, fickle things to trust in. They make really enslaving masters. It's exhausting. And Solomon says that anybody who trusts in his riches will fall. All right, Proverbs eleven twenty eight, the first part there. Right, the gospel remedy Paul gives is to set your hope on the gift giver. Right, you see the gift and you get your eyes up above that to the gift giver who, who provides us with everything and I made note of it just a moment ago, to enjoy, to enjoy for your pleasure, which will sync up with his kingdom purposes when you have your eyes fixed on him. And when we rest and trust in the Lord, not only do we delight in him, not only do we hold our possessions open-handedly, not only are we filled with gratitude, but, man, it, it, We really can, and Chris, you mentioned this this morning, we really can have happiness, right? We really can be happy in the Lord. And Paul goes on, he says, do good, do good. This is genuine, noble works flowing from being changed by the most noble of works. Right, which is the works of Christ. And instead of focusing on being rich with money and hoarding that and trusting in that, Paul uses what seems to be wordplay, and he says, be rich with good works. Right? And he teases that out. Be generous. Again, cultivate an open-handed, generous heart, leveraging what God's given you for his kingdom. Use your money, use your status, use your influence, use your reputation, and leverage it to advance the gospel, and in so doing, store for yourself up treasures in heaven. I don't know what all that means, but what I know is it doesn't mean earthly possessions. It doesn't mean earthly possessions. We don't store up earthly possessions in heaven. Paul, just a few verses before this text, says that we can't take our stuff with us, right? This is a spiritual treasure, an imperishable treasure, which is a gift from God. It's God really crowning the good stewardship of the gifts He's giving you. It's like He's crowning His own gifts. And this stewardship happens when you value eternity. When you value eternity. And when you set your affection so fiercely upon the Lord that it impacts how you use the resources that He's entrusted to you now. You become so eternally minded if we can flip the old cliche, you become so eternally minded that you do so much earthly good. 
Right? It's a hunger and thirst for expanding the kingdom, perhaps longing to see those lives uh, that, that you've impacted by God's grace because of your faithful stewardship in this life. Longing to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? Valuing what is coming in eternity, it changes everything now. It changes everything or it should. Right? It was our eternity. It was our very eternity that was in the mind of Christ when he died for us. So, in light of that, may we as a church bring everything in our lives to subjection to the grand glorious reality of what Christ gave up and and use what we have to promote that message to people in every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A few takeaways for us this morning. Number one, and this is in your worship guide, so don't feel stressed about jotting, jotting this down, but spend time, and this is just an action step from here on, spend time meditating on God's inescapable presence. I've given you a few verses, a few chapters you can meditate on. Psalm 46, Psalm 139, Proverbs 15.3, the passage we looked at this morning, 1 Timothy 6. But spend time meditating on God's inescapable presence until it seeps in your bones and animates your life. Secondly, Christ will return, and we should prepare ourselves in this world for a second coming. And I don't mean in, that in the doomsday way, because I, I don't, I'm not doomsday-ish. Um, characteristics of a cult. Uh, Christ is transforming this world. Right? And, and so let, let's labor... In this world, prepare this world for his second coming. Three, the gospel is the disinfectant for your specific sins. The gospel is the disinfectant for your specific sins. Therefore, confess your sins specifically and use gospel remedies of Scripture to walk in repentance and faith day by day. And then lastly, enjoy, enjoying and delighting in the triune God is the secret and foundation to enjoying and stewarding any of the good gifts that he gives to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word, Lord. We ask that you would... God, we, ha- we ask that you would transform us, God, that you would uh, increase our love and our affection for you. And God, that, w- that we would hunger and thirst to know you more, to worship you, in the way that you've prescribed, in a way that honors you, and to labor joyfully in this world that you've created as we prepare it and await for the day that Jesus Christ comes and destroys the last enemy, which is death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.